0: Hello, this is Father John Arnold and this is Oro Valley Catholic and today the gospel is about the limits of power, uh, how power ought to be exercised and what you ought to reasonably expect from people who have power. Uh, and it's a really a very timely topic in America, a country that seems to worship power and think that because we're the richest country in history and the, probably the dominant military power on the globe Um, And we're a democracy that we should be able to accomplish pretty much everything we set our minds to. But, you know, in the last month, the pullout from Afghanistan after two decades and trillions of dollars of money uh, resulting in basically the Taliban taking over and the imposition of Sharia law and then the fight between the Taliban and the Islamic State. You have to ask, what the heck was that all about? And it has echoes of Vietnam for those of my generation. Because at the heart of it is, uh, can you really build nations through military power? What are the limits of power? And it's not just the military. Think of our, of our history in our in our uh, United States. So everybody remembers the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, that with Dr. King, uh, he worked for how many years uh, and got uh, such great recognition for civil rights and really moved the needle on racism in our country. But still, here we are, how many decades later, and we have uh, George Floyd, we had, a nation torn apart by by essentially racial riots. Um, we know that we have made great strides since, well, make it uh, the early 19th century when slavery, slavery was practiced in our country, going back to its roots where it's practiced north and south in our country. Um, so I guess, would you rather be a black woman in Alabama in 1801 or uh, a black woman in Alabama in the year 2021. Uh, In both situations, uh, there are going to be struggles. But one situation, at least objectively, seems to be so much better than the the previous enslavement. Or uh, not just racism, but uh, issues about LGBTQ, which have become so much to the forefront now, especially when it comes to gender theory and all of these different ways of looking at human beings that at least seem to have at their at their core some ideas. If you could just accept these theories, then you'd see really everything is, is equal. It's all more like this, uh, being the same, but that's also tearing our country apart. Feminism, uh, Simone de Beauvoir wrote a book uh, gosh, 60, 70 years ago, called The Other Sex. And it was a criticism of male patriarchy in Western culture and how women had suffered for centuries under that. It was the match that lit the fuse of second wave feminism, uh, which told women basically that if you want to be equal to men, you have to be able to compete in the professions and in industry. And sold this understanding of equality that says if you wanna participate in power, you gotta do it like males do it, um, like have, as males exercise power. Missing from de Beauvoir's book was any criticism of the problems inherent with how men have handled power. That's not missing in the gospel, but it misses uh, very much in the popular literature. Um, so what does that have to do with the gospel? So let's take a moment and let's turn to the gospel and talk about two aspects of it. Um, Why Jesus dies for the many and what does that mean? And the second is, what does servant leadership really look like? So there's two issues of discipleship that this gospel raises that I want to talk about. But let's put it into the context of this whole teaching on discipleship, that is chapters 8, 9, and 10 of the Gospel of Mark. Um, If you remember from, well, several weeks ago in September, uh, in chapter 8, it was Jesus's first prediction of his passion, Uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. It's St. Peter that says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, "Uh, excellent. This is God that revealed this to you. Um, In Matthew, Jesus will say, and you are uh, rock, and on this rock I will build my church. That's missing in Mark's. Uh, Because it's Peter's gospel and probably he doesn't want to make a big deal of it It's Matthew's story to tell about Peter But we have to remember that Mark is the gospel that's told from Peter's perspective But you remember uh, what Peter's response is Peter's response is, oh no Lord, uh, don't be such a negative Nelly. You don't have to die And that's when Jesus says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it Whoever loses his life for my sake and that of the gospel will save it. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What could one give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this faithless and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. So the first prediction is pointing right towards the cross and says if you're going to follow me and this is to his apostles it's all the way to the cross and so you turn the page and you're in chapter nine and it's the second prediction of his passion Um, and you remember that they're walking along the way and Jesus says okay I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem but nobody dares to ask him any questions and so when they get to where they're going Jesus says "Uh, what were you arguing about on the way but they remain silent They had been discussing amongst themselves on the way who was the greatest. Then he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone wishes to be first, it should be the last of all and the servant of all. Taking a child, he placed it in their midst, and putting his arms around it, he said to them, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So just take a moment and how Jesus is setting up his leadership for uh, the spreading of the gospel. And it has to be this self-sacrificing leadership. And that's when you come to the third prediction of the Passion, which is the gospel for today. And so um, it's set up because James and John, who are with him at the Transfiguration, they'll be with him at the Garden of Gethsemane. They will not be at the cross. Uh, which is uh, an important point given what Jesus' teaching has been in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Do you remember in the gospel for the 29th Sunday, um, they go to Jesus, James and John, the brothers and sons of Zebedee, and they say, we want you to give us whatever we ask for. And so obviously Jesus and 10 are up, although he probably already knows what they want, which is um, they think he's going is the Messiah and they think he's going to come into power. And they want to be able to sit on his left and his right because these are the two most prominent positions. I think we all get what the question is. But it's this story about picking up your cross and following uh, him. It's becoming like a little child, or as Jesus says, um, that if you want to be first, you have to be last. You have to think about leadership differently. And so in the third passion prediction... Jesus is batting clean up and he says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt, but it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So what's at the heart of Jesus' teaching about servant leadership? At the heart of it is the cross because all of these teachings are right centered on the cross. So why does the cross say? Here is another another understanding of it. God is all powerful. God is omnipotent. Why didn't God make the world this way? Why didn't he make it that way? Why didn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? That's what everybody asks who wants to uh, exercise power over God in a supervisory way. You can exercise that power in your prayer life, I think, but rarely does it have any positive effects, if at all. But the idea that all powerful God stripped naked on a cross becomes the sign of God's nonviolent, merciful love of humanity. You know, when you look back in the Old Testament and the new atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins, especially, uh, are fond of going back to these odd stories in the Old Testament, like the prophet Elisha cursing these boys who made fun of them for being bald, and two she-bears come out of the forest and uh, consume the boys. If you have to defend every word of the Old Testament in its literal sense, boy, that's a hard one to do. It's like First Samuel when Saul gets in trouble, because he didn't kill every one of the Amalekites. And so that's how he loses uh, his kingship, because he doesn't exercise dominating power over God's, uh, God's enemies. Well, you know, Christian typology will deal with all of those stories on a spiritual level. Um, you know, if you mock, you, you're you just going to be consumed, and the bears are just a metaphor for how sin consumes us. Or with the Amalekites, you have to make complete war on sin. You can't make peace with sin. But that's not what the literal meaning of those stories are. And so how somebody in a time period of the Bronze Age would have understood those stories is different from how a Christian would understand it. Because we read the Old Testament and these stories of God and violence and power through the cross. The Old Testament is always the inspired word of God told to us through a culture and a people. This is the church's teaching about scripture. How we read it is always through the revelation of the love of God in his son crucified. And so that when Jesus Uh, the all-powerful Son of God, who has exercised these great deeds of power uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels, uh, opens up his hand and is willingly crucified. He shows himself to be the human face of God, and the human face of God is the suffering servant. Where does that come from? The first reading for this Sunday was, uh, Isaiah 53, and it's one of the servant songs from Isaiah, and I think there's a, four of them. Um, but it's also at the heart of the link of this story with the Last Supper and the Crucifixion. So if you get the chance to hit the clink, the click, the link on the uh, on my podcast, you can go and take a look at these these readings. But here's what it says in Isaiah 53:11. And this is about the Messiah that's coming who will be a suffering servant, but will save his people. And this is what Isaiah said about the future Messiah. Because of his affliction, he shall see the light and fullness of days. Through his suffering, my servant shall justify many, and their guilt he shall bear. That phrase, shall justify many, is the key phrase. But it's the story about this servant that isn't coming with the sword, isn't leading a vast army, and isn't dominating anybody. He is going to save people because he is a suffering servant leader. And so look what Jesus does with that in uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, which again is the Sunday Gospel. You know those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so clearly, Jesus is referring back into his words to Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant is giving his life to justify the many. You may remember that in many of the arguments that we have in Catholicism, around 2006, there was a big argument about changing the translation of the Eucharistic prayer and the institution narrative uh, as it is said over the uh, chalice filled with wine. What it used to say up until about 2006 was, and you probably remember, take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant." which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. That's what we say now. What we said back in, up before 2006 was, will be poured out for all for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Well, if you look at 2 Corinthians, Jesus clearly dies for all according to St. Paul. But the point of the what you say over the chalice is to capture the scriptural reality in the institution narrative. It's Jesus' reference in chapter 10 to dying for the many because it links back to Isaiah 53. And so it's one of those examples where the church's translation is faithful to the words of Christ in the gospel, but understood in the backdrop of Christian understanding that Christ is a Catholic death and that anybody uh, anywhere can respond to this and find salvation but that it reflects his death on the cross which is the death of the suffering servant and so that's really the first issue that comes out of these readings um, the role of the suffering servant in jesus preaching why he focuses on the cross in his three pre- uh, predictions of the passion um, and something about power Uh, and Christ's exercise of power on the cross. And so we turn to what our second question is, which is, what are the limits of power? So what does servant leadership look like? Um, For Jesus, uh, his example to us uh, is the love of God and fidelity to God and love of neighbor that takes him to the cross. So servant leadership, if you just take these three passion predictions, is about the willingness to accept suffering. It's the willingness to follow and trust like a child trust. It's the willingness to be the servant, the slave of all. That in the end, what provides credibility and effectiveness to power uh, is the love of the person wielding it. Why is it in the United States, at least historically, though you don't seem to hear it so much anymore, is we like to describe our leaders as public servants, that they're there to, to serve the public. But the problem that most of us have with the way that power is exercised in our country is, is that people who claim to be a servant um, seem often enough to come out as millionaires. So uh, they may be a slave, they may be a servant, but it's a pretty well-compensated serv- servitude. Uh, servitude. And it's one of the reasons why institutions uh, in our country are so um, uh, disrespected, just to say it bluntly. Uh, Very few people seem to come out of the military uh, or law enforcement wealthy. And so if you look at national polls, uh, those two polls really uh, show a lot of respect for the military and for the police. But um, in terms of Congress, they get like an 8% approval rating. Uh, and it's this concern that uh, politicians uh, will feed at the public trout. It's clearly not true of all politicians, but clearly there's some great offenders. It's also true in the church. This is one of the th- disappointing uh, things about the church is you remember that the former bishop, not the current bishops, who is a great guy, Bishop Brennan's a great guy, but the former bishop, a man named Brace uh, Bransfield, um, he just clearly embezzled money for his diocese. He sexually abused young clerics and seminarians. There was a man who was supposed to be a shepherd of a flock who clearly fed on, fed on the flock um, and was forced to give restitution to his diocese uh, for the money that he had, he had unjustly taken. Some of the shocking things about it was that he had a diocesan finance council, um, but it doesn't appear that, appear that they were very effective in opposing him. Now, what the church has put into uh, the canon law is most estis lux mundi, that if you have a concern that a bishop is abusing power in the church, you can report him both to the metropolitan and to the papal nuncio, so that there is a way to get your complaint heard. Um, clearly, was not the case at the time that uh, uh, that bishop, in particular, Bishop McCarrick, Cardinal McCarrick is another great example of a guy who... Who basically took care of number one uh, these are not the servant models uh, that Jesus talks about in the gospel and Jesus does talk about people like that uh, that if they mislead little ones better than a millstone's attached to their neck and they're thrown into a river and out of Christian piety we pray for these men but there is a, a blindness to people that misuse power like that Because clearly the critique of power in the gospel is that power is for the service of others, especially the little ones, the ones that don't matter. It could be the working guy who's just struggling to keep his family together. Maybe it's somebody on the border. Uh, Maybe it's a child uh, struggling with learning disabilities. Clearly it's people of whatever... um, background, whether it's racial or if it's LGBTQ people or, or uh, women, single women can be, uh, or mothers can be really victims of injustice, that Americans should not get tired of what uh, injustice is and trying to make our country uh, a more just place, even though we understand that even that gets manipulated. You know who is a great teacher on this? Um, and a great example to remind us of servant leadership from the Christian world, but not the, the Catholic world. It's um, Dr. Martin Luther King, and I have read several times um, his letter from a Birmingham jail, where he was jailed because of his participation in nonviolent protests in Birmingham. Uh, the letter was written from uh, in August of 1963, and he was receiving criticisms from other Christian leaders, white leaders, especially in the South, who would not disrespect the cause of um, uh, equality uh, for people of color, not outwardly at all, um, but that were arguing that uh, his uh, nonviolent protests were really uh, uh, counterproductive, that this is the law and we all should obey the law. But the, the thing about he was, what he was in jail for, he was apparently marching because he didn't get the permit to, to have a march through Birmingham. And because they wouldn't give him a permit, even though he went through all the requirements to get it. He said, you know, an unjust law is not any law at all. And so when he writes, he says that, you know, before we in the civil rights movement do um, anything about bringing the, the injustices against uh, black men and women to public attention. We have four basic steps, he says, and this is in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Uh, the collection of facts to determine whether injustices are alive, negotiation, self-purification, why are we doing this? And then direct action. Don't you wish that in the protests that are currently going on and have been going on in our country, that somebody who was in these protests would write a letter saying, here's what we did to, dis- to determine whether there's injustice is. We tried to negotiate, but we were shut down. We then purified ourselves so we were not responding out of anger or um, uh, unjust motives ourselves, and then we took direct action. Uh, he provides a template for what servant leadership looks like in uh, democratic protests against injustice. Uh, Why is it that almost always, at least in the last few decades, this seems to be ignored? And then he writes, you may well ask why direct action, why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You're exactly right in your call for negotiation, Dr. King says. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issues. And he goes on a little later. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by oppressors. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. And so his point is, is when you're looking at this, it's not from uh, the perspective of City Hall. It's from the perspective of people who have presented a case about their unjust treatment. Um, And then he turns to the question of justice. Because servant leadership, at least as we look at it in the United States and for those who might claim Um, some uh, semblance of justice in their protest. Uh, He wrote this, and what I love about his letter from a Birmingham jail, he quotes both St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. And so here's what he says. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954. Remember, he's writing in 1963. 1954, outlaying, outlawing segregation in the public schools. It's rather strange and paradoxical, paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just any law that degrades human personality is unjust." Now, to think that Americans who have so many problems with, well, uh, everything I've mentioned, uh, could look for inspiration for what servant leadership, what just leadership looks like when confronting an unjust world. I think for the most part, the pro-life movement has been exemplary in this. Partly because they do have these strong Christian underpinnings, they want to talk about what's unjust. They're always willing to use legislative action. Uh, I do think that, although you do see some kind of disappointingly angry conduct sometimes uh, amongst um, amongst uh, the pro-life uh, uh, militants, uh, overwhelmingly I'd say that is not the case. Um, and then direct action, whether it's praying in front of an abortion clinic to draw attention uh, to this unjust law that allows um, the killing of all, these, of all these children in the womb. Um, people don't like unjust laws, although sometimes if their ox is not getting gored, they won't say anything about it. What people really don't like is the people that rock the boat. And so when we're looking out and we're looking at the riots in, around the country is, you know, we should have some standards in our church by uh, how we judge um, these riots. You know, with after Dr. King's assassination, uh, I remember uh, buildings were burned in Tucson and across the country. Um, anger and frustration, you can understand. Um, but... It doesn't make it just. You know, the idea of the cross, the basic religious spiritual idea is that the cross justifies us. It makes us righteous. Uh, But it does it through nonviolence. And so at the heart, it seems to me, of servant leadership, especially for those who think about the pro-life movement or or, uh, judging any of these other movements that you may or may not have much sympathy with, uh, the real question is 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 how well they make their case about justice, how pure their intentions are, uh, what their efforts to negotiate and use the legislative process were, uh, and then ultimately the way that they conduct their direct action. So you think about the two things that are uh, in the gospel today, why Jesus dies for the many, and the other is about what servant leadership looks like. Remember that Jesus dies for the many to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 53. But as to servant leadership, it's really how uh, the men and women in our institutions exercise their offices and the power that they're given. And I do have a lot of trust in many of our politicians and our, uh, the bureaucrats that, that run our country, that they really try to do a good job. Um, but the fact that we as Americans have to hold people accountable for when they take care of themselves. And we as Catholics have to hold bishops and priests and other people in power in, the, uh, in our church for how they um, use their office. Um, this is at the heart of what servant leadership looks like. Um, people are, are, are made pastor here at St. Mark's because they're supposed to take care of the people at St. Mark's. Um, that becomes the standard for whether Father John Arnold's a servant leader And it's one standard that applies to all of us. So let's bring this to a close. Here's a good meditation about uh, whether you've given your life for other people, whether you've been a servant leadership, a servant leader. What do you think your eulogy is gonna be like when one of your kids or one of your friends stand up at your funeral? What are they gonna say about you? You know, mostly, in my experience, nobody ever gets up at a funeral and says, you know, this guy was powerful. Oh, boy, let me tell you, he took care of himself, and he did well. Um, This is really his legacy to us, how it is that you get power, get money, and take care of number one. That is not a eulogy I have ever heard. Uh, Of course, I haven't heard, uh, been attending at your funeral yet, but it is something we should all be concerned about. Um, how do people think we use our power as a parent, a pastor, a, a leader in business or in government? Um, what do you want your eulogy to sound like? You know, the prophecy of dying for the many. Um, do we give our life for other people? Because at the core of Jesus' teaching on discipleship is that question. Whose life is? is benefiting from your life. There's something to pray about. This has been Oro Valley Catholic and this has been Father John Arnold.